Hello and welcome to the Anima Cafe podcast, a chance to hear the recording of our latest cafe, sharpening your skills around justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Enjoy. Thank you all for coming here today. We are very, very excited. And I want to thank you as well, because part of what I imagine drew you here is that you have a shared um, interest in furthering justice, equity, and inclusion uh, for everybody and for people that um, you share community and organizational and perhaps familial space with. So thank you for coming. Um, I wanna just start by acknowledging the traditional territory where Anima leadership is based mostly um, here in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, acknowledging the traditional territory of the uh, Huron-Wendat, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabek, and in particular, the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations, and acknowledging the First Nations people and their ancestors as the stewards of this land that we feel so privileged to be living and working off. Tomorrow in Canada, we have just made um, soon to be uh, a national, hopefully, a national holiday um, in recognition, a national day of truth and reconciliation in honor of our very um, painful history with First Nations people across our land. Here at Anima, for us, it isn't the, the process of reconciliation isn't just about hiring a few Indigenous people into the team or organization and then feeling like, oh, job is done. It's about shifting the way we look at and move and practice in the world that we are part of. And indigenous communities across the globe have one thing in common and that is placing relationship at the heart of the work. Relationship to self, relationship to other, relationship to organization and community and relationship to the land and this larger entity, this larger mystery we're all part of. And for many of us, that's a very deep and core shift in how we fundamentally approach our everyday work. And I wanna name that because I think this book is part of what that shift looks like. I'm gonna say more about the book in a minute. Um, before I do that, I want to give a couple of thank yous because no book arrives in the world without a tremendous support of many, many people to make it happen. Um, so uh, I wanna start by thanking myself. That was a joke. <laughs> For those of you that don't know me. <laughs> As Shaquille's partner. Um, no, I want to start by actually formally acknowledging the book's publisher, Greystone. They picked this book up um, uh, about a year ago, and they have been phenomenal. They have been the best home possible for these words. They have... Um, uh, stewarded it at every part of the process. And I want to just formally recognize um, uh, uh, the staff at Greystone. Maybe you folks could just wave um, and you can scroll through your screen and see who some of those folks are. I also want to acknowledge the members of the Animal Leadership Team. We are a small but mighty team. Some of you may have a sense of that. And um, so Anima team members, if you could just also wave and uh, you can scroll and see some of the who who some of those folks are, and especially James Beaton. James has been the longest um, staff member here at Anima Leadership, and this book would not be possible without his tremendous research and support. So James, 
kudos to you. I can't see you right now, but I'm just giving you big love. And I also just wanna thank all of you. Um, many of you, as I scroll through the screen, I recognize from other courses, um, our conference uh, trainings, things that we've been participated in together, learning we've, we've done together. And our community is what has allowed us to keep going over the years. We have learned alongside of you. We have, this book is possible because of brave, brave conversations with some of you. And we, um, we, we feel, we just feel so privileged to be part of this, this community. So thank you all of you for being here and all the ways you've also supported over the last little bit of time. So thank you, Anima community. Okay, so the reason why we're all here, I'm gonna introduce um, who uh, many of you probably uh, know. Uh, I wanna introduce Shaquille, who is the, um, I should have introduced myself. I'm Anahid, I'm the CEO of Anima Leadership. And uh, our organization has been around for about mm, 15 years now. We work around the globe, mostly in North America, helping teams and organizations and individuals become more uh, adept, competent, and comfortable with creating diverse, but more importantly, inclusive workspaces. And Shaquille is, um, is our chief visionary officer, um, the first edition of this book came out a number of years ago in 2015, and this is the revised edition with about 30-40% um, different context, and Shaquille will speak to why, why it was important to renew this book in this particular period of time. But I'm going to just introduce Shaquille for those of you that don't know him, and if you don't know, he's also my life partner. Um, and when I met Shaquille uh, many years ago, um, he, uh, his first book had just come out into the world called The Brown Book, and he was doing anti-racism uh, sessions off the side of his plate. At that time, he was working as a teacher, and um, the bones of what deep diversity became were, were evident in those early sessions. And what I want to, the reason I'm kind of touching a little bit into the history is that this book is really um, a result of years of practice, research, and dedication. And for any of you that do inclusion work, you know how, excuse me for, I'm gonna, fucking hard it is. It's really hard. You know, there are many easier paths and sessions and places to teach than being in the trenches of what I think is some of the most emotionally volatile topics than surround equity, diversity, and inclusion issues. And Shaquille has done that his entire career. Um, and he can talk about, um, you know, maybe some of the, the deeper reasons, but certainly his entire career has been devoted to this. This book has taken hours and hours and hours of research. It comes out of hours and hours of practice with frontline staff to executive leadership teams and, and experimenting with what works, what hasn't, what does. And, um, and it comes out of personal story. And I think it's a brilliant interweaving of all those strands in a way that's really accessible. And I think provides a missing piece in this puzzle of, of what it means to create um, and advance justice, equity, diversity, inclusion in all the places it's needed. So without further ado, um, I'm going to uh, say hello to Shaquille. Hey everybody. Thank you, Anahid. Uh, thank you for the introduction. <laughs> and um, uh, I wanna thank, uh, there's two more thank yous I have to, I have to do. One is I really wanna thank um, uh, Grace Stone, Jan Kroll, who's here, who's my editor, who really saw the vision of the book 
and uh, and was was wanting to pick this up and move it forward, and also to um, uh, my uh, agents uh, Sam Haywood, as well as Leonika Valsius from Transatlantic, and sort of want to appreciate their belief in the book and all the all the rigmarole we had to do to get it um, to get it out. So just want to appreciate that. And lastly, I want to thank you, Anahu. Uh, thank you for being uh, such a big cheerleader and for being a supporter of uh, of the work. Well, do you want me to ask you a question or would you like to? Yeah, let's just jump in. Okay, great. Well, tell us why you, you wrote this book and in particular, this revised edition. So the original book came out in 2015 and, uh, and then Trump landed into our universe uh, in 2016 and the conversation really changed. So there's a need to revise it. Uh, the but the whole impetus for writing the book really came from, you know, really it goes back to almost 20 years ago, you know, this time of, uh, this time of year, this fall, uh, it was 9-11 and I basically burnt out at that time. And I was a community activist and organizer and an educator and I walked away from community organizing and, and I burnt out and part of my work, the reason that I burnt out was because of how I did my work too. My relationships were frayed. Everything was kind of all over the place. And um, I just checked out. I was done. And in being done, it forced me to step into a healing journey, one that still continues today. And what that did was it got me to start realizing that a big part of my you know, frayedness wasn't just my work or the circumstances. It was the choices I was making. And I had basically relinquished all control to whatever was happening around me. I was either always raising my hand or extending myself. I was basically disconnected from my emotional self. And the healing part was reconnecting to my emotional self. And in doing so, I was able to step back into activism with new tools, with new ways of being in the world and realize that one of the central pieces that we were missing was really the work on emotions and emotional literacy. And that the healing we do out there in the world is connected to the healing we have to do inside. And it's not an either or, it's actually, a, it's a yes and. We have to do both. One doesn't come before the other, they in fact feed each other. So I really wanna um, recognize that, that the book and the framework that came out of the years afterwards that started looking at emotions and started looking at um, neuroscience and uh, trauma therapy and systems change and conflict and all these different pieces is um, is what got me excited about writing a book in the first place because we started just seeing a lot of results results that we see today where there's just greater level of buy-in people are more willing to talk about tough thorny issues and and leaders are buying in more we're seeing not just attitudinal change but behavioral change we've done probably a half a dozen uh, data sets from organizations in Canada and the US. And so this methodology is one other tool at our disposal to help make change. It's not the only tool, but it's a tool that many of us, especially who are educators and bridge builders, I think we need because there's not enough options for those of us that know where, where racial justice and social justice is our, is our form, but we tend to get ourselves confused with our role as educators as confused with our role as activists, our role as, as academic. And each of these has, or advocate, like these three or four roles are all diff, are under the same umbrella of justice, but they have different tasks. And so it was really about 
offering something into the world that allowed people to see themselves first and foremost for people in the mainstream to be able to take on this topic of systemic discrimination, systemic racial discrimination, um, and, and understand it because it's invisible, it's subtle, it's hard to see. And that includes both white people and uh, racialized people, indigenous people, black people, people, just because we come from a lived experience doesn't mean we can see the patterns. And so it's for anyone who is still learning to see the patterns. that's a primary group. The secondary group is for social change makers and activists because this route and leaders, because this route is more sustainable in many ways because it highlights the role of ourselves and brings compassion to the picture. And so I think it's also sustainable in lots of more ways for the people doing the justice work themselves. And if you've been in justice work for longer than five minutes, you know, burnout is a major, major mm -hmm. thing. So those are some of the reasons that prompted me to write the original book. And then the Trumpian context and the post-pandemic context, post-George Floyd context, all of these are things that needed to be addressed to keep the work vibrant and updated and connected to the current context. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I um, I just want to also, I realized I didn't mention before, but Loretta Ross, Dr. Loretta Ross is also on the call already, and she will be moving into conversation with Shaquille in just a little bit. So um, Loretta, welcome. And so, so thrilled you're here. I'm looking forward to uh, bringing you in in just a couple minutes. Shaquille, can you, um, you know, I know certainly before the pandemic happened, there was a little bit of a feeling perhaps that um, diversity was kind of happening and, and things were okay. Um, where would you say, broadly speaking, we're at in our journey towards creating inclusive environments in society, but within our organizations? Where are you seeing this particular moment? Well, I, I'm, seeing, I'm seeing a few things. I'm seeing, first of all, I think it's a hopeful moment. I think there's a way in which um, society is finally ready to have the conversation about systemic racism, as it's called. I mean, it's just racism. Racism is systemic. It is structural. It is institutional. So mm -hmm. to say systemic racism is a bit redundant, but that's what's in the mainstream. So we can at least be appreciative that it's there. Um, I think what's, I guess where I, I just really want to go to to speak about this is that organizations are way more on board. There's more leaders on board and organizations showing up for the first time saying things like, okay, we're predominantly white, we realize it's part of the problem, we don't know what to do, help us. And it's been the post-George uh, Floyd context that's, that's made that level of vulnerability. And that's not been anywhere in my journey working with executive teams to grassroots, grassroots folks. And so that's new and that's an opportunity, which is why we have to talk about not just racism in its systemic forms, but we've got to talk about how to teach it. Because education is the key in this work and people are confused. And what's missing in the work is really the role of emotions. We have basically prioritized the thinking, the cognitive, and that's been helpful. I mean, without the cognitive, that helps us have the historical context. I mean, if we don't know the history of residential schools and broken treaties, then we don't know why reconciliation is, is important. If we don't know the history of blackface, then we don't, we, we don't understand why darkening one's skin may be as offensive to one community as a swastika might be to another community, right? So we've got to understand history and we need the sociology patterns too, because that's what helps us understand why that there is in fact in decades of research showing that 
marginalized communities, racially marginalized, uh, racial minority communities tend to have the uh, highest rates of harassment, discrimination are over-policed and the lowest rates of uh, being serviced uh, and being under-treated in healthcare and education and criminal justice. So all these different things are at play. What's missing is emotions. What's missing is the fact that this conversation evokes big feelings in people, whether it's around boardroom tables or kitchen tables. And what that means is that our core sense of self gets touched. It basically triggers a survival response in us. It activates guilt or shame or, uh, or anger or rage or shutdown, whatever it might be. And that's really important. But what the thing is, is that in our work around traditional mainstream racial justice, social justice work, we treat emotions like they are an impediment to the work. And my research and experience shows that emotions aren't an impediment to the work. Emotions are the work. We have to learn to dance with the emotions. And what, our, what my team's experience is, is that the better we get at dancing with people's emotions and help them work through those emotions, the more likely they are to then be willing to step into the more difficult conversations, the more painful conversations, the more fraught conversations around racial privilege and oppression and fragility and dynamics. And we're having these conversations inside organizations. Yeah. And, you know, um, to paraphrase James Baldwin, you know, we can't confront a problem until, until we can honestly face it, mm -hmm. right? And have an honest conversation about it. And so we're at the very early stages. And I wanna remind all the justice folks, and everyone on the call, that this is new work. Meaning to tackle the systemic forms of racism, which are subtle, that are ubiquitous, this is new work. Meaning we don't have 100 years of history trying to sort through the systemic forms. We have hundreds of years of history working through the overt forms, not systemic. Because you see, overt racism, we got it. Overt racism is like, we know who we're fighting. It's the racists. They're more obvious, but subtle implicates all of us, regardless of identity. And so I just want to say that, that, that this, is the, this is the conversation we got to have is, is um, have, help people have these conversations. I think most people want to, they just don't know how. Thank you for, for speaking to that. And I, I, I'm going to ask one more question and then we can move on to um, your, your reading. Um, I think what is unique about this book is the word deep and, you know, the deep diversity framework is kind of a four part of framework, looking at emotions, implicit bias, identity, power. And the first three parts of that framework, emotions, bias, and identity are really looking at the deeply subconscious underpinnings of why discrimination happens. What led you to investigating Kind of, you've spoken to that a little bit, but what got you to kind of look at that sort of deep sublayer of, you know, external discrimination? Discrimination, because it's a very unique, I think, it's a very unique path. In it was just the, the, you know, I was following my nose, and uh, as I learned about myself, as I learned about my own wounding and needed to do some healing, I was realizing all kinds of things about myself I didn't know. That took me into the realm of psychology and psychology took me into the realm of neuroscience. And I think the biggest learning for me was that there are not just nurture forces at play, but there are nature forces at play. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's probably been the biggest insight, which is why it's not an either or, although I come from the end, that's, it's all about socialization. It's all about nurture. Nurture is the only thing that's important. Mm -hmm. And my own healing, my own work, my own tendencies, some of those are of course affected by, by nature and how it's socialized, but some of those are also just, just uh, about my temperament. I have a different temperament than other people. I mean, no two kids are born in the same family with, with the same temperament, right? Uh, and if you're a parent, I'm a parent, we've looked at our kids and they're like, wow, these are two very different temperaments that are coming into the world. So um, I think that I've come to appreciate that there's biological impulses, that there are evolutionary impulses that are within us that served our ancestors that lived in the caves and in small, violent little tribes, uh, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of years ago um, with early humans, but does not serve us today. And yet we've got we've got remnants of that architecture. And so what I think racial and social justice work tends to miss is that there's a whole psychology underneath humans that we also have to account for. Otherwise, we end up developing very stilted solutions because we, we don't fully understand the problem. And so this is one attempt at trying to understand the problem in, in a bit more fullness. Yeah. And it strikes me that uh, in my wearing my CEO hat, um, you know, people come to Anima because they know that we're effective at shifting culture, behavior, and leadership practices. So I'm going to ask you to just tell one short story that illustrates the impact of this work. Well, um, I would say, I would say this, that, um, there's many stories, but uh, you know, one that's kind of alive for me right now is is that uh, you know inside organizations when we've done this work, uh, there's been really promising results. In one case, we had we had a, a manager go to um, do do some of the work with us and been working long term in the organization, and so I'm able to do follow up with with managers and leaders and and learn stories about how it's affecting them. And this one manager shared. Uh, 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 a story where they 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 went back to their team and said, "Look, I've just learned about this stuff around unconscious bias, and and I've not only learned about it, but I'm realizing it's linked to these aspects of racism. I I don't understand it all, but what I do know is that I can't fully see my own bias, and so I need your help. And so if you, I'm inviting you to sh to tell me about if you see." my bias coming up in ways in an appropriate time, tell me about it so I can learn to interrupt it. And um, a week later, one of their staff came, came to them and said, yeah, I'm really appreciating this unconscious bias work because I'm realizing that I also can't see my own bias and, and I would like your help. If you see, let me, let me know. And these are just like simple stories, but, but, but progress is, is in the small. And the same organization has, has, uh, that I've been working with for about five years now. I've seen incredible change over that time from uh, leaders committing resources, uh, doing focus groups on, uh, on anti-Black racism and really understanding how it manifests inside an organization that already has really good employee engagement, that, um, that there's lots of examples of people interrupting bias and doing these different kinds of things. So I just wanna say that there's, that there's a lot that, that um, there's lots of promising results that indicate to us that, that there's success that, that is happening because honest conversations are happening. And that's why compassion has to be used in this work because any of us could be in each other's shoes if we've been 
for different circumstances of our birth, families we're born into, the bodies and skin bags we're born into, right? Like these are these are complicated things we're trying to take on. So to make the work happen, what deep diversity is, it's an ally generator. It really gets more and more people on board. So we need more people on board to be able to do this work. That's great. So I'm, I'm conscious of time and I know I want to do a short reading because I want this reading to be a setup to the conversation that I'm going to have in a few minutes with, with you, Loretta, and I'm going to do a formal introduction to Loretta Ross in a few minutes. But I want to set this up because I think that we need to have um, a more complex conversation around how power works. And I think that there is one aspect of power that we really uh, talk a lot about in justice work, and it's, it's really around social power, whether it's um, looking at racial justice, gender justice, this is really looking at institutional structural forms. But there's a, there's a, there's a problem with that is that when we, when we just look at structure, we can become hypnotized by power and we can lose connection to ourself. And so um, I, I, wanna, I, I wanna talk about, I wanna introduce three different characters that, that uh, are a way to talk about how power can get misused in all of our work. And in fact, each of these three characters, I wanna say, actually live within each of us. I'm gonna talk about them as external, but there's elements of these within us. And so um, this section is uh, on characters from the, from the social justice universe and the misuse of power. What page, Shaquille? Cause some people might have their book. Oh, we might have, well, 150 if you've got the book. <laughs> okay, so, um, so with great personal power, we can develop the inner skill of discernment, the ability to respond thoughtfully rather than simply react emotionally to a situation. Although we'll discuss this concept in more detail, um, it's important to introduce here. In my consulting practice, I fairly regularly encounter leaders who misuse or abuse power because they fail to discern correctly what's happening in front of them with regards to systemic forms of racism. Uh, take, for example, Thomas, a composite of a white executive in a large public sector organization. Because of his inability to recognize how patterns of subtle racism play out in society broadly or within his institution specifically, he became defensive and argumentative when allegations surfaced of systemic racial bias in hiring, promotion, and pay equity in a report about his employees. Rather than listen to the experience and concerns of the employees of color, he responded in very common ways called those individuals who raised concern troublemakers, blamed poor decision-making on factors outside his control, and declared he didn't have a racist bone in his body, citing the letters of support the organization had made in support of Black Lives Matter. In short, he tilted away from the problem and refused to take any real responsibility for it, which is a terrible misuse of power. His emotional fragility was on full display in his responses, which were minimizing, denying, and individualizing the problem while pathologizing the employees who raised concerns. Unfortunately, there are too many leaders like Thomas who misuse their power because of their inability to decode oppression patterns and become system thinkers regarding issues of diversity and justice. Just as the struggling canaries and coal mines were harbingers of toxic air for workers, racial bias complaints in organizations are often omens of systemic problems that if left unaddressed may poison the environment. I refer to such leaders as paper tigers as they suffer from an excess of ego and entitlement 
including internalized dominance and fragility tendencies. They have been socialized into unbalanced ways of being, including always knowing the answer, even when they don't, binary thinking, being the center of attention, and sticking compulsively to the status quo while struggling with vulnerability, authentic self-reflection, and perspective taking. It's amazing that disproportionately high profile leaders I've met who turn out to be paper tigers, whether it's in organizational, academic, political, psychological, um, athletic or journalistic organizations. This absence of pattern recognition is also a problem with many self-described liberal-minded people, what I call free speech centrists. And these are people that I generally agree with. For example, in an online video, um, well-known and respected author Irshad Munji and, and Deborah Mashik from the Heterodox Academy were lamenting about the political polarization in the United States. Specifically, they were criticizing call-out culture, the tendency for justice-minded individuals to criticize and publicly shame those who have made racial or identity-based mistakes, acting inappropriately or harming others in some significant ways. As proponents of dialogue and free speech, they made many important points, including how knee-jerk call-outs can create environments where people don't speak their minds for fear of being ostracized. I'm in agreement with their central proposition how we achieve social change goals is as important as what we achieve because process matters and that we need to engage with those we disagree with and especially so during polarized times and that activists can sometimes behave like those they oppose. My disagreement, their discussion was minimal, however, about the problem of racial oppression itself. They spent little time on the problem of racism and focused primarily on how unhelpful racial justice activists were being because of the methods used. In this view, the reaction to the racial violence seems more important than the violence itself. Their inability or unwillingness to meaningfully explore patterns of systemic discrimination left the impression that the problem of racism was really an individual thing that could be fixed if we just talked nicely to each other. Discernment, however, is also missing from a particular brand of social justice warrior, which results in a different misuse of power. I call them the evangelical activist. An individual who brings searing clarity, skill, and assertiveness in identifying the dynamics of power, privilege, and oppression in any situation, they are articulate and fearless in calling out racial or gender bias in interactions in the context of community or the workplace. However, the shadow side is that they can be judgmental, intimidating, and punishing in their use of shame and blame tactics. Coupled with high levels of distrust, they sometimes behave and talk as though there is a singular path to ending oppression and they're amongst the chosen few to shepherd the illiterate, the illiterate mass, masses along. I've seen this particular pattern enough times within myself and my peers to know that the power of the evangelical activists often comes from some combination of the following, academic and activist training that promotes an over-reliance on the perspective that the world is neatly divided into victims, perpetrators, and rescuers. Academic and activist training that nurtures an unwavering moral certainty and self-righteousness with an encouragement to use punitive justice measures to intervene, interrupt whenever they believe oppression is happening. And also it's tied to often personal wounding or identity-based trauma that guards unprocessed emotions such as grief, fear, or feelings of vengeance. As a result, evangelical activists over-identify with their low social rank and are often unable to dis discern how much personal power they actually wield. 
Because of belonging to a minoritized group, based on factors like race or gender, they believe they are immune to committing abuses of power because from their worldview, they don't possess any. And this is how the misuse of power arises because they often underestimate how much their words, actions, or distrust impacts others from both dominant and non-dominant groups. It's important to note that while the three archetypes uh, exist along a continuum, they are not proportional in numbers or impact. Paper tigers are the most numerous and the greatest block to meaningful change. Towards the middle are free speech centrists who would be powerful allies if they could develop more expansive racial pattern recognition skills. On the other end of this asymmetrical dynamic are social justice activists, a tiny minority compared to the systems they hope to change. For context, evangelical activists are a minority within this minority. For this reason, I, I'm drawing attention to this group because they're often leaders in social activism, influencing the tenor, shape, and direction of how change takes place in the long and short term. As a result, they're a group with outsized impact. And I'd also like to suggest that these characters from the social justice universe are often within each of us, depending on the moment and the context we are in. And there are only a handful of voices within a sea of perspectives that need to be heard in order to achieve long-lasting, transformative racial justice goals. So that's a little segment. And um, I wanna once again emphasize that I'm talking about people out there, but I'm talking about their energies living inside us. And so with that, I want to pause and I want to use that to segue into what uh, this conversation I'm really excited about. And I'd like to welcome Dr. Loretta Ross. And if you've been at Animal before, you know that, um, that Loretta has presented at our conference. And uh, Loretta, uh, you know, there's so many things we could introduce you for. Uh, I'm going to tell you the stuff that I, I know that I, I'm most um, moved by is that uh, Loretta I see you as an elder and as an act um, in the activist world. You have so many decades of experience underneath you and uh, you have written books. You are one of the co-founders of the reproductive justice movement. And, uh, and uh, Loretta has also uh, uh, written a book that will be coming out next year called Calling In the Calling Out Culture and really made um, a splash in, uh, um, in the racial justice conversation in some a couple of the articles that um, that showed up in the New York Times, uh, including one that you had written about calling culture. And I just want to appreciate that, um, you know, you and I've met in the past and I was just always moved by your ability and your fluidity and your ability to be in the grassroots and your ability to be in very um, high academic concepts and your ability to move fluidly between these two things is what's always impressed me about you. So I really want to welcome you today. Well, thank you. And it's an honor to be here with you. So what I'd love to do is I've read that little section. And I wanted to use that as a little bit of a jumping off point for our conversation, because I know you've written a lot about uh, calling in and calling out culture. And I'd love for you to just reflect and react on anything you heard and anything, any threads you want to pull in, we'll just jump into the conversation. Well, I really appreciate how you started off talking about your capacity for self-assessment after burnout. I know that I entered the movement being unbelievably wounded and angry because I'm a rape and incest survivor. Mm -hmm. And at 14, I lost control over if and when and with whom I'd have sex, whether I'd have a baby born through rape. Um, 
and I was immensely self-destructive. And so I packaged that today, more than 50 years later, to show people that mentoring is about showing your scars, not your successes, because other people are undergoing those scars and they really do grow as you become vulnerable and share what your journey has been. And it really provides a pathway information and a role model for others to be brave and share their journeys and really take full ownership of every mistake that you've made. Because another thing that I learned as a young activist in my twenties is that when you have bad news about yourself, be the first to run and tell it because that's the only way you'll control the narrative. Otherwise, any other way it comes out will not be helpful to you. I can guarantee that. And that was from having my worst mistake in the Washington Post when I was 27. And so I come to you writing and teaching and educating about the call out culture, not because I'm an academic, I've only become an academic in the last five years of my life. But before that, I had more than 45 years of doing social justice work, working in the anti-violence movement, the violence against women, working in the reproductive justice movement to address population control and the devaluation of all lives that weren't white, working against hate groups and deprogramming people in the Ku Klux Klan and the neo-Nazi movement. And in each of those areas of work, I had many successes, but I had even more scars. And so when I heard about how young people were using social media to call each other out, first of all, I was shocked that they had named it because that surprised me. I was really late to social media, but that they didn't have a way of sifting from the past lessons that were applicable today, that the civil rights movement used to bitterly fight behind doors. In the women's movement in the 70s, we call it trashing each other. You know, amongst progressive radical movements, it was who was most Marxist, who was most this, who was, you know, those kinds of things. And each of those offer lessons to the present because no one generation or no one identity, no one suffering has all the answers we need. We need everybody in this struggle. And I'll just close by saying, but what frustrated me about what I was reviewing as I saw what people were doing to each other was that we were teaching people radical analyses, but we weren't teaching them the radical politics of care in order to use these analyses responsibly. And so when newly empowered and newly informed people started a woke competition and started calling each other out for not being woke enough, I realized there was a missing piece because the greatest privilege in the world, more than white privilege, more than gender privilege, more than ability privilege, the greatest privilege in the world is knowledge. And you have to learn how to use that knowledge in a responsible way. Otherwise, you'll start feeling that you're all that. And, and you can you know, cause a lot of damage in the social justice movement. And mostly, you'll see our human rights movement 
as your personal therapy space, which That's it right. is not. That's the right. purpose of human rights is to end oppression, not to make you feel safe, comfortable, like you're in a womb, like Bernice Reagan says. Coalition politics is not about the womb. Yeah, and I'm, you know, I hear you say that, and there's there's so many things that go through my head. One is, I think that the big part of it is that is that activism, and you and I talked about this, that the de facto leaders, because more and more people have been going through university over time, you know, since like you know, the undergraduate degrees become what the high school degree used to be in the '70s, kind of thing, that that there's this over-intellectualizing of the problem and that and that the analysis is important but there's a place where critical thinking becomes cynical thinking and that we don't know the line is never clear where that is it's because you're right we've gotten more and more critical and some of that's useful like every few years we come up with new terminology that i find useful educationally like i thought white privilege and tone policing these are all good important concepts uh, fragility, like these are all good, important concepts, but they get compromised because we got nowhere to put our emotions in activism. Yeah. And because we got nowhere to put our emotions, uh, there's nowhere to process them because um, it's always like do more thinking when you're struggling and in looking into this vast, you know, cyclone of trauma. Just keep thinking about it more as opposed to creating space for it. So it keeps us tight and it keeps us ready to unleash our feelings on each other. And when I burnt out 20 years ago, I, it became really clear to me because I remember being at this meeting uh, post 9-11 uh, where community folks were trying to organize. And I watched this room filled with people from the, all different parts of the justice spectrum sort of criticize, snipe, attack. And, and I was like, wow, the world's falling apart and look what's happening inside here. Like, we can't even have a conversation and the emotions are being unleashed on each other. And, um, and, and, you know, 20 years later, it wasn't that long ago, I was watching a group of young people organizing uh, against neo-Nazis marching through their community. And I saw the same dynamic and that dynamic of criticism and, um, and sniping to a point where I was like, are you sure you're clear who you're, who you're fighting against? Because you're kind of acting like each other is, the oppressor in a way as opposed to a collaborator. And, um, and, and, I, and I think that that's, that's been a big undercurrent in, in the work. And I think a lot of it has to do, my opinion has been that we, we aren't teaching people to be in relationship, we're teaching people to be right. And, and, and there's no discernment in when to use what strategy. And it's like, we always gotta use the protest strategy on everybody and everything. You know, so, um, you know, I, I'm just I'm just sort of struck by those those things as I hear you talk. Well, one of the things I analyzed in writing my book is how we've got to use our purported analytical skills to recognize one basic fact. The people who are drawn to human rights work are trauma survivors. That's right. People whose lives are going around swimmingly, who don't see any problems and stuff, they're not the ones that we're organizing. By definition, we're organizing trauma survivors. So I'm self-critical that we don't anticipate that. That's right. That we don't plan for that. And we act constantly surprised when this trauma shows up in our work. Right. When in fact, that is our base. People who have survive trauma. 
That's right. And so instead of being dismayed by it or surprised by it or act like it's a problem, trauma is our fuel. It is not our obstacle. It's the reason that we're passionate about the work. And so I want us to sophisticate our ability to build containers for that trauma. But the purpose, again, of the work is not to do the healing from the trauma. I hope all these people go get some therapy or some other (laughs) (laughs) which I did. Yeah. But because the purpose of the work is not to heal from the trauma, but to prevent other trauma from happening to someone else. And, 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 and we miss, we get that wrong because we think because we come to the movement, we're, we're able to bring our full selves and our, you know, ugly stories to the movement, then our story should be the reason the movement exists and healing us from our story should be the reason the movement exists. And to me, that is false expectation, the same false expectation that some of us grow up thinking our family should be our best friends and our political comrades, just to find out that ain't gonna happen. (laughs) (laughs) That, you know, families have a particular role in our lives, but maybe being politically aligned with us and understanding us to the extent that we can be understood, that probably ain't gonna happen. And so we bring these false expectations to all these aspects of our lives. And I'm inviting us to re-examine yes. those expectations. And when you re-examine those expectations, you can re-examine the choices that you make because it is a choice to make the world more cruel than it needs to be. That's right. You get to choose that. You don't have to just say, I have no choice because of my politics. I get to blow up somebody's life or more importantly, blow up my social justice organization because I get called in a lot because the people trying to do the good work are a circular firing squad. They're blowing up each other. Right. And I want, I want to, I don't want to act like I'm not angry because I am angry. I love being the angry black woman, but I want to be precise with my anger. I don't want to be a machine gun just mowing down everybody with the capacity to hurt me. Hell, my mama has the capacity to hurt me. I don't want to (laughs) mow everybody down. I want to mow down, not even mow down because that's an overstatement, but I want to counter people for whom cruelty and violence is their weapon of choice. That's right. And there's so much in what you said and the the two things that I'll, I'll, I'll pull off of one is that I think this aspect of confusing workplace or educational place as therapeutic space is 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 the, the lack of discernment. You you described as precision. I, I talk about as as discernment. And you're absolutely right. And I think that some of the reason that that happens is because there's no space for us to actually talk about the healing work that also needs to happen. And this uh, I love you a human rights worker organizing ourselves we're organizing the wounded well it's so true because what is our what is the mantra on the left it's to fight the power well when we're fighting the power there's also a belief amongst progressives that power is a bad thing well over time i've come to learn and i've been taught by my mentors the power is energy and we've got to learn to use energy well but you can't use uh 
uh, power well if you dislike it, which is why there's so much misuse of power. And the misuse of power on the left is, is we underuse it, but we also have a big unity problem. The circular firing squad that you're talking is exactly right. It's because we're wounded by powers. We don't trust anybody with power, which is why, like, um, you know, like we we're the first to attack our leaders. It's the thing the right definitely doesn't do. They might not like their leaders, but they're not attacking them. We are the first to attack our leaders. And on a micro level, I'm not just talking about the Obamas. I'm talking about um, like in a workplace context. You know, a colleague of mine said, you know. I'm being really encouraged to take that high, apply for that higher level director position. And I would, I would like, I could go for it and I suspect I'll get it, but I really don't want to apply because when I make a mistake, I know I'm going to be left alone by my people. They're going to be the first ones to attack me. So we are creating a culture of like, what kind of leader is going to want to go up into that context? My dear friend, Judy Levick said, well, probably people um, like me that that were, that were totally disassociated from our bodies because we wouldn't let any of this stuff go in. It's like, whoa, so, so those we want thoughtful leaders, how do we learn to support each other? And that's the relational part that I think has been missing because we have almost an exclusive focus on the historical and sociological. We have a big focus on we're really good at history, we're really good at sociology, we're not so good at emotions. We're not, and we're good at like lashing out because we've been given permission. I, I believe, you know, Audrey's Lord's um, words around anger have been totally misused to a point. It's like, wait, she was talking about anger. She wasn't talking about being dysregulated at anybody and everybody at, at your choosing. She was talking about the strategic use of anger and the conscious use of anger and allowing that kind of space as opposed to just, I think it's the emotional aspects that are missing. There are elements that it's just, let yourself go at any at any moment and i think that that's that's part of the problem and i'm saying this not as an outsider i'm saying this because i'm talking to myself i see these tendencies with inside me i i've seen these in the past i continue to work on them i get enraged and pissed off i want to be really upset at people so when i'm saying this is a problem i'm saying this is a problem hey i got to look at it first I don't want to be once again going, that's the problem there. It's like, no, it's, it's here. It's inside me. It's inside all of us. And that's why we got to do the inner work, the work around self-awareness and self-regulation and relationship building, the kind of things that I talk about in my book as a way of helping people think about there's an infrastructure that we can do. And it starts with baby steps. Well, Audrey was a friend of mine. We are contemporaries. And so I had uh, a chance to have these conversations with her because I actually asked her what she meant by your fear of anger will not protect you. And she gave me a long conversation on that. And I knew that I was operating at the time being afraid not only of that external anger that other people would give towards me, but my own anger. Cause I felt that if I unleashed it, I'd become a fire out of control that would first consume me and, and, and maybe consume the people I was angry at. I mean, Nelson Mandela famously said, hatred is that poison you drink yourself hoping that the other person dies. <laughs> <laughs> you know, anger is like that. If you don't regulate it, control and target it, it's going to be self-destructive and probably have little impact at all 
on the people who are causing harm and pain. And so the first thing you have to do in a calling in process is call yourself in before you can call anybody else in. You have to be capable of self-assessment to make sure that you're able to manage your emotions and your unhealed trauma in a way that you can provide loving listening for somebody else's lived experience without gaslighting them, without denying them, without overreacting because their experiences aren't your experiences. And you have to be clear on why you're doing it. Because if you're calling in somebody because you hope they will change, you've already failed because you don't have that magic power to change somebody else. If you did, families wouldn't fight, lovers wouldn't fight, coworkers wouldn't fight. The only power you actually have is to change your reaction to people. That's self-power, you know, self-mastery. So you've got to be clear on your motives because if you're doing it to, to change somebody else, you're gonna fail, but you can do it to change how you react to people. I'll just share, since I'm almost 70 years old, I realized when I finally learned to accept my mother and I was at 35, because I had spent so many years trying to change my mother. And at 35, suddenly I realized I had to change my reaction to my mother because she wasn't changing at 70, no more than, you know. And I felt so, not only at peace with her, but I saw her as a human being for the first time in a different way. Mm. Because she was no longer mother, she was a woman who had done the best she could have done under the circumstances she had. Mm -hmm. And it changed everything for me with my relationship with her. And so calling in are are easily learnable techniques. I teach them to eighth graders. I teach them to Congress people. I teach them to everybody. But those who are not willing to be self-accountable and self-examining are the least likely people to embrace a call-in strategy because it so starts with being responsible for how you walk through the world instead of trying to police and pass judgment how you think somebody else is walking through the world. Right. And a lot of social justice criticism never starts with that old practice of self-criticism, criticism, unity. It always projects outward. You're doing it wrong. And it's under, the first of all, it's based on a false system of binaries, which we could talk about. But it's always based, it's also based on the perception that there's only one way up to the mountaintop. That's right. And it's my path or you can't get there kind of thing. Yeah. Not yeah. recognizing that, as I said, we need every race, every gender, every, every strategy in that shared pool of knowledge so that we can figure out the best way. Now you talk about emotions and I'm probably in a different space with you than you about emotions because I see so much social justice work leading with emotions that all we end up ending is in an anger pity fest. That's right. And people get so quickly divided based on their trauma on, you know, centering everything on who is defined as the victim and then 
excoriating or passing judgment on who they define as the abuser. It just, I don't know if starting with emotion is where I'd start because I'm starting with the emotions of traumatized people, which is their truth, their lived reality, but it ain't the total truth that we need. And so it kind of starts at a place where we can be so easily derailed yeah. Uh, yeah. when people give full voice to their emotions long before they get their thinking brains on. And I've been in too many meetings where people who have the loudest voices and the most visceral, visible emotions set the tone and the agenda and very little gets done under those circumstances. And, and I, I agree with you. I think where, where I'm coming from is that um, it's about the conscious use of emotions. And, and what the issue is, is that when we're not aware of our emotional state and we're not taught to focus on our emotional state, it makes us reactive rather than responsive. And, and so it's not about opening up a space that is like, hey, people, it's just an emotional fest. It's about saying right now, we in North American, Canadian, US societies are governed by white Anglo-Saxon Protestant norms and a white supremacy keeps a very narrow band around emotions about what we can and can't express. And that makes- Unless you're a white man, because a white man has full range of emotional expression. It's everybody else that is called emotional. Well, it's true. I would say though, even white men are only given permission to be stoic or angry. They're not, they're not given permission no. to be vulnerable. So vulnerability is not part of the equation. And what, what I'm suggesting is that by creating, um, by titrating in space and literacy that equally brings in our awareness around our emotions, because when we're not aware of our emotions, I may not be aware that I'm actually really angry and upset as I'm talking to you about a concept that people are believing to be neutral. That gets to be part of the problem. But if I'm, if we give people time and space to check and say, how are you feeling before we start about this? We just talked about power. How's it, let's not go cognitive because cognitive is easy. Stick here from what hits you here, what touches you here. And what it is, is just creating the space for people to own their emotions rather than project and eject and vomit out their emotions. And I think that, I think that part of the problem is, is that we haven't equipped the racial and social justice educators with that skill set. We equip them with this skill set. And then we've given them some fancy words that have to do around emotions with little understanding around what it means. So people are misusing and abusing and overusing the harm language. They're overusing the language of trauma. It's like that, let's not confuse turbulence for violence. And that's the discernment. That's the precision piece you're talking about. Let's not let's not confuse um, uh, harm for discomfort. But our theoretical frames have given permission to misuse language of trauma, and 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 people misuse it because there's no space. And so as a result, people are being held hostage by emotions. And what I'm suggesting is that. We do it by developing more emotional literacy so people can learn when to use emotions, how to use them, when, to, when they need to give space for them and when they need to self-regulate. And when we do this, 
in a more dynamic way. I think it makes it so that we can get to those concepts and get to those conversations. But they're first hostages themselves. That's right. That's right. Because That's right. the reality be becomes because they don't know that they have choices, that this grudge that you're carrying around really isn't working for you. This unfocused anger that spews out all over everybody is not achieving the goals you think it's going to achieve. So they're the first victims of their own emotion. And, uh, and that's where you start working at because I don't do this work trying to get people to understand what they can do for others. I want them to understand how joyful it is to become your fuller self, mm -hmm. to not be held hostage by the dirty fingerprints of your oppressors in the past. You know, you're giving that person free rent in your heart and head. Um, I want you to say a little bit more about that, Loretta, because that's that's really an important point. Because I think there's a way that the way that we're proposing our work can also get really criticized because it means that we're being too easy or letting, you know, white folks off the hook or men off the hook or whatever. How say more about what you just said, because you said you said something very powerful that there's something in this that actually helps benefit those that are the most oppressed and most marginalized. Say more about that, because I think that's something very important. Well, I think I speak in the register. I speak because I didn't come at it academically. I didn't even graduate from college till I was 55. So I can't say that my learning came through a book. I became a you know an academic in my third career, not my first. There you go. There you go. Uh, and so... At 14, I had to decide whether my rapist was going to determine my destiny. Oof. You know, at 14, I had his baby, but did I did he have my life in his hands because I had his baby? Oof. And so my mother observed about me when I was 16, when I was going off to college for the first time. She said, Loretta, what I like about you is that you don't let success go to your head. And I said, oh, mom, you know, uh, you know, I read Reader's Digest too. I've read that book somewhere. And she says, shut up, because she knows my mouth. She said, you don't let success go to your head, but mostly you don't let failure go to your heart. Mm. And that not letting failure go to my heart, she peeped at me long before I knew it about myself. And that's what I want everybody to understand, that things will happen to you, some of which you have no control over. Some of them are self-inflicted wounds. But you get to choose whether you let your mistakes and your failure go to your heart, mm -hmm. or do you use them as opportunities to work on becoming your better self? The other thing, that I think gives us inroads into working with people who are very unlike us, have different political perspectives, or different uh, lived experiences, is to talk to them about this justice alignment that's taking place globally, like reproductive justice, economic justice, you know, food justice, health justice, and on. And I'm pulling out the point of alignment because most people think they're better than they actually are 
and how they behave. They have an inner good opinion of themselves. And then there's dissonance in how they actually behave. Kind of like, we all think we're quite hygienic, but how many of us 100% of the time wash our hands after using the bathroom? (laughs) So there's always this disconnect between how we think of ourselves and how we actually act. And so calling in practices is about aligning those two things. I want you to be as good on the outside as you think you are on the inside. So instead of focusing on what I see on the outside, that's a problem. I want to build that inner muscle, that interior opinion, and show you how doing the right thing is going to make you feel better about yourself. The same way you feel better about yourself when you inch up into 100% in washing your hands instead of only washing them when somebody else watches you do it. I mean, there's, there, there, there are possibilities there by focusing and redirecting our attention, not on what we think they're doing wrong, but what they think they're doing right and we want more of. that's where you get people to make change because they like feeling better about themselves. They like the recognition that they have an inner good soul. They Mm -hmm. like the fact that they can mold that soul and address their own alignment. That's what the work is right there. And Mm -hmm. whether it's emotional, political, professional, all of those things, are about leaning into this age of alignment that's happening globally, but it's also happening personally. That's right, that's right. Well, Loretta, I'm gonna pause us here because I know that we've been talking for a bit. I'd love to make sure you've got uh, a five minute bio break or get some water. And what I'd like to do at this point, just put a pause, we wanna hear from you in terms of your your questions. So we'd love for you to do is this, that um, first of all, uh, let us know what are you taking from this conversation? What has been um, uh, what has been helpful uh, in terms of uh, this conversation? What are what are ideas? What are things that that you are um, that have that you've gained from this? And then we're also going to take questions. So um, I just want to give Loretta and I an opportunity just to, to take a. a two minute stretch and and then we're going to come back but we'd love for you to fill in the chat and i'm going to invite anahid and um emma to just do a little bit of uh light um uh light curating of any comments or questions summarizing them so when we come back um in just a few minutes that we can hear from what people are taking and then also if there's a we'll uh, we'll have an opportunity for probably uh, a couple of questions, uh, you know, handful of questions to get through until 1.30. Well, I'll, um, I'll start with one of the connections that jumped out at me, which was, um, and I see some comments around, was this the connection between what Loretta was talking about in terms of, um, you know, we're pushing this politic or this view, uh, this way of seeing the world in terms of systemic power inequities, which is quite frankly hard. Right. I think about Margaret Atwood's quote, we see the world clearly and we see it through tears, you know, like it's painful. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. we don't get, equip people with the radical care skills she talked about mm-hmm. to be able to hold that well. Mm-hmm. And that to me, the radical care skills was what Shaquille was talking about in terms of emotional intelligence, like learning to be aware of 
our own emotional uh, feelings and our reactions so that we can discern how to, how to act in, in various situations to push forward the equity frontiers. And it's like, I, I, yeah, that was a really big takeaway theme um, uh, piece that emerged in the conversation um, that struck me was, um, or that they both spoke to that, which, you know, how do we teach people the emotional skills to be able to heavy lift the justice perspective mm -hmm. and the work required? Cause it ain't easy. Yeah, and what, what became clear, which is something I've only ever thought of um, backstage, mm -hmm. but when Professor Ross said, um, you know, I wouldn't start with emotions because what I'm starting with would be traumatized people's emotions. Mm -hmm. When we start with tools around emotional intelligence, mm -hmm. what we're doing is a trauma-informed approach. Uh-huh. Yeah. And how on earth could we try changing a traumatized world without a trauma-informed approach? Mm -hmm. yeah. it, it's so simple. I'm surprised it's taken us so long to get here <laughs> as a movement um, because this language is relatively new. Mm -hmm. in, in the progressive communities I'm a part of. I don't know that social change is often described of as a trauma-informed movement. Mm -hmm. And um, I know Loretta's gonna be back in a second, just wanted to get a sense of questions that you saw coming through that, that we may have time to, to jump into. Yes, questions are coming in. Before we summarize them, I just wanna say, there is a lot of amplification of quotes of brilliance. Mm -hmm. So I just wanted to say in a very short time, the two of you have packed mm -hmm. such delicious um, uh, quotations that people are, are repeating and amplifying and it's a joy to see. And uh, it's a lot to digest because it's, it's so powerful. Um, yeah, can I just because before we go to questions, just yeah. very quickly, because some people may, may have to leave early. I just want to mention that we have um, finally got um, up on the website, the, um, the course is available for you to register. And if you wanna take the, the course that's based on the book and the, um, we'll put the link into to chat and it's available in hybrid, in other words, um, live webinar format or just self-directed. And um, I'll circle back at the end, but I wanted to mention that now. So it's, it's available for folks. Uh, yeah, sorry, and Emma, you should introduce yourself. My name is Emma Lind. I'm the Director of Training and Development here at Anima and uh, love every minute. I'm thrilled to be on this call with you all. Uh, there is a question here. How can the arts, both individual and collective art making, help us create spaces for this kind of emotional work, for difficult conversations and for bridging thinking and feeling the spiritual and political? Uh, my, uh, my background, uh, doesn't, um, I don't have a lot to offer that question, but what I do know is that uh, dance, music, um, all these creative things are access to our unconscious place. And that, and that often um, I tend to be more of a consumer rather than a creator on, on that front. And I just find that we have so many different learning styles that you know, the, the artistic view is so important to, to include and bring in other dimensions, 3D, 4D, uh, in a way of getting us to think and fundamentally feel 
uh, about a situation. So I, I think that there's powerful roles of, of helping us move forward and think and fundamentally feel about, um, about these issues. The originator of the term calling in is a trans activist named Lone Tran. And they are an artist as well as an educator, analyst. And what is amazing about Lone is that they created the whole concept of calling in when they were only 18 years old. Out of the mouth of babes came the pathway forward. And I love the fact that they're a Renaissance person because they combine art and politics and organizing and deep thinking in one package that I'm just fascinated by. I work very closely with them now. Uh, and I am just awed by despite a 50 year difference in our ages, we are so on the same page about our work and the vision we have for the world. And so I'm one of those people, first of all, I don't have an artistic bone in my body. I could use that like the racist bone defense because while other people were learning how to color, I learned how to read and that's all I did. So <laughs> I never had dolls. I never dressed up dolls and I never did coloring books or any of those things because I love to read. But I love the fact that culture shift happens with the cultural workers first. You know, they're the ones that are most needed. And it's the thinkers that keep running to catch up to the cultural workers, like catching up to the freedom train after it's already left the station. And so even though I'm not at all artistic myself, I prioritize the bringing in of the cultural workers and well compensating them because I know how vital they are into creating that vision for people and that emotional thirst in people that then we can add some words to. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you. Mm. Um, I have a question for Shaquille. There's, um, there's a question about how do we address the collapse of false equivalence in these issues? And um, maybe um, Parker, you could, you could speak to this, but how I read that is how do we, um, when you were talking about the pa habit patterns, recognizing the patterns, the characters in this work, Shaquille, and you named three common tropes. Like I think there's something about how do we, how do we not, put everything into the same same boat when we're talking about emotions, you know, if we're centering emotions and the fact that not, not everyone's emotions necessarily are equal or should be equal if we're talking about equity and justice, at least that's, that's what I'm getting from it. Well, Maybe the, clarify. I mean, what, when I think of false equivalencies that, uh, you know, one argument's always used to then create, you know, the Democrats are, are, you know, politics is screwed because Democrats are doing it, Republicans are doing it. Like every, it's, it, we're living in such a polarized environment that there's no more space for truth. It's just my opinion, right? And I think that's where the false equivalencies start showing up in, in lots of the work. I think that the path forward is also, you know, in, in our work, we really uh, talk about the idea of fluidity, meaning 
our ability to discern is our ability to dance because the truth is somewhere between going up to the macro perspective and seeing what's happening on the patterns out here and then being able to zoom down to the micro pattern. And it's our ability to flex between the macro and the micro uh, to actually figure out what is the, the truth or what is the solution that's needed in this moment, in this particular time. I think we get lost in our generalities and our generalities just leave us in these cognitive arguments. Whereas I think that, that for me personally, uh, the, the through line of being connected to self, the through line of, of knowing that I'm, I'm triggered or not triggered or what I need to do to be able to hold myself allows me to see through the false, uh, the, what might be a false uh, equivalency, what might be um, confusing because someone's presenting just a big argument and having a big feeling around it. So now suddenly I'm like, oh, I'm too scared or I'm reactive. And so I, I, I like to think about it as, as just, um, can I quiet myself? Can I see the factors that are at play for this person? Can I see the context that this is in? In another, in another context, the answer might be that racism is happening. Maybe in this context, that's not, that's not quite the answer. Maybe there's something else happening here too. Maybe there's a family history underneath it. But if I just assume I always have the answer because of a lens that I carry, that's often the, 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 the problem. I think I get around these, these polarities by always leaving the space to be wrong, leave the space to learn, leave the space to be affected by someone and find what's right for this moment. That doesn't mean we have to collapse into the mushy middle. I think what it does mean is that we can hold our own position and hold it strongly while we're also being open to being informed by someone else's position. And I think those things allow, allow me to find, find the ground in a moment um, a bit more, more closely than, than just relying on my head. Now, do you have something you want to add to that, Loretta? Yeah, I find that false equivalences are used by predominantly a couple of categories of people. They're the intellectually lazy, because <laughs> they can't discern differences between different sides and, sides and aspects of a situation. So it makes them feel good to assume that both sides are roughly the same, so I don't have to work it hard. Yeah. It's hard to figure out what the differences are. Um, then they are used in a political purpose to disguise harm. When somebody says, well, the judgmentalism of the left is as dangerous as the judgmentalism of the right, that's bullshit. Excuse me, somebody has power and somebody doesn't. You know, someone has the power to send the military out and kill millions of people, and some people don't. You know, and so when you use those kind of hypocritical false equivalences, you're really trying to disguise harm in some way. Kind of like saying those of us who are trying to hold the United States accountable for its human rights violations. The first thing the defenders of these human rights violations say, what about China? Well, since I'm not a Chinese citizen, they're not my problem right now, but I am a US citizen. And the purpose of human rights is to hold my own government accountable. Yeah, and so, and then there are people who like to think that they're in the middle because they get some kind of imagined comfort from pretending 
that everybody else is an extremist and I'm the intellectual balanced middle. Right. Uh, that could be both a bit of hypocrisy and laziness. That's right. And, That's right. and, and, and a fear of conflict. So I really warn people not only to avoid false equivalences, but don't even embrace the under, underlying philosophical binary system. That's right. That is underneath it because things are far more complicated and nuanced than a simplistic false equivalence allows us to look at. That's right. Well, Loretta, I know there's so much more we could talk about, but I want to make sure I get a couple things in. One is this. Um, uh, for those folks that, uh, like us, are big fans of Loretta's work, just know that we are doing everything we can to have Loretta offer her calling in uh, uh, course uh, sometime next year uh, to, to the Anima Network. And so be on the lookout for that. We'll definitely be working through something like that. And we're very, very excited to, for Loretta to, you know, um, and her team to be offering some, some work around that. The second thing is that know that I think it's around this time next year that your book, Calling in the Calling Out Culture, is going to be Hopefully coming. The summer of 2022, just in time for the fall semester. That's what we're working towards. Perfect. So, so that means that's likely a spring launch. And uh, know that we will also be helping um, helping you promote that, Loretta, because we love your work and it's very aligned with ours. So uh, that's also coming. The the other thing is is that. Um, uh, today's the, the launch, the official launch, the book, uh, The Deep Diversity is out and it's available in stores. Really want to encourage you to, if you haven't got a copy, to, to get one uh, because it helps amplify this work because unfortunately, like, you know, bestseller lists and all that kind of stuff gets attention and attention is what gets more people to learn about the work. So I uh, encourage you to do that. If you have a book, uh, would love if you could uh, write a review on Amazon or on Goodreads that, again, helps amplify and get the work out into the world. So um, those are things that I want to I say. There have been lots of links dropped in by my team to help support any of those things. And, um, uh, and uh, Anahid, I'm going to leave it to the closing to you. But, uh, but what I want to do is I just want to say thank you, Loretta, for, for being here today. It is always such a pleasure to be in conversation with you. Uh, I always feel like I learn. And I know that our community has learned a lot through this process. So uh, I'm delighted that you could be here um, uh, and have this fireside chat to help launch my book and, and the ideas um, connected to it. So thanks so much. And I know that you and I will be in touch. I'm going to do a closeout, um, repeating. Sorry, Loretta, oh. is there any, any final words for you? I just want to be No, this was wonderful. Thank you. I hope I do as well with my book launch. Ah, we'll help you. Don't worry. Uh, yeah, we will. And uh, Kristen, if you could throw in the um, the review links, that would be awesome. Before we close, I want to just say a thank you to everybody that has attended. Um, for me, uh, the reason that what keeps me going in this work is knowing that what we as humans give attention to can always change. We are about to populate Mars. We can certainly figure out this 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 dilemma of how to create more inclusion in the world. It's just what part of ourselves and each other and our organizations we are paying attention to. And um, I think about future generations and how we are all here to help pay it forward. So you're part of that. Thank you for coming. Um, please get the book and post a review because you know, you're, our, you're, our, you're our community and all the support helps. And um, 
with you on the journey. Have a great rest of day and uh, a great weekend and look after yourselves in this time of ongoing pandemic. Radical care. Thank you, Loretta, for being here today. Thank you. And congratulations, Shaquille. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Oh. Maybe You'll as you leave, me. unmute. It's nice to hear voices. Please, oh, if you want to pop into the chat. Thank you. This is wonderful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening today. Our next episode will be available soon.